Okay. All right. We're officially started here. Uh, welcome to the webinar. Um, how to answer any question, including your, your own. We are sharing the secrets. Um, I'm Chase Taub, and uh, I want to give you a little bit of a background to why I'm doing this and what we're trying to accomplish, and also how it's going to work tonight, as well as tomorrow night. This is a two-part webinar. It's tonight and uh, tomorrow night, 8.30 till 10 p.m. both nights. That's 90 minutes times two. So I figured with three hours total, I will not feel rushed, and uh, I can really explore these themes at a, uh, at a thoughtful pace, which is precisely what I want to do. Um, so first of all, I just want to talk about the title of the webinar. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the title. I just sort of typed it up, and I put it out there. But afterwards, I saw that it was an appropriate title. I don't know if it was catchy or cute or, you know, if marketing uh, gurus would say it was a good title. But as far as accuracy, it said what I wanted, wanted it to say uh, because I think the title is something like how to answer any question, including your own. And the most important word in that title, should I make like a poll? We could do like a poll. No, I'm not going to do a poll. Um, but... <laughs> You can just think for yourself, what is the most important word in that title? And the most important word in the title is the word how. This is not what to answer. This is how to answer. If you want to know what to answer, um, today there's something called Google, and you can find out the answer to any question. You want to know the average annual uh, rainfall in Bismarck, you can go find out. You can find out the answer to any question that's a what question, what is, you can find that, all right? But then there's the how, the methodology, the approach. And uh, that you can't Google. That you have to learn. It's a skill. And it's a skill that I, I, I guess I've developed. People tell me that I do it well, but uh, I feel like it's something that is transferable and I want to transfer it to you because, um, well, first of all, I don't have enough time to do this for everybody. So I want to teach other people how to do it and then more people can be helped. Uh, but second of all, there's something um, messianic about it. When I say messianic, I mean the fact that people don't know the truth on their own is a symptom of exile, the metaphysical exile, the fact that God's presence is in exile right now. And when Mashiach comes, when the world is perfected, um, the prophet tells us that no man will teach another man saying, come and know God, for all will know me says the Lord. So the idea that one person needs to ask somebody else for clarity, um, that's just another thing that's wrong with this world today. And as we're getting closer to Mashiach, we're getting closer to the Messianic era and to the perfection of the world, um, we want to see more and more people having their own clarity and finding the answers within. So, um, yeah, that's part of my my motivation here 
of uh, giving away the secrets, the quote-unquote secrets, uh, which I, I consider to be open source material, so that everybody can replicate this and do exactly what it is, whatever it is that they think that I'm doing. Um, I want to also mention that various people who came here tonight probably know me in various different capacities. But the most important way that I would like you to know me, if you want to know how I would like you to know me, is through my classes. Um, and a lot of people know me as the answer guy. I'm not happy about that. Uh, as I just explained, it's not about having answers. It's about uh, a process. It's about a way of thinking. And the best way that I can teach you to think how I think is to teach you the stuff that I'm studying that's con continuously um, forming and shaping my thinking. And that's by having you join me for classes and for learning. So I want to just encourage everybody to uh, avail yourself of the resource that is soulwords.org. There's a website, soulwords.org. Um, a lot of time and expense and effort was put into taking all of my classes from the past few years and putting it in one place. Uh, we encourage you to go visit that regularly. Content is always being updated. There's weekly Torah portion every week. There are series of classes. There's a, the entire Tanya, 53 chapters. The entire Shara Betochen, the Gate of Trust is there. Um, as well as many other popular series, series on, on, on music, series um, on uh, the, the holidays, everything that you could want. And it's constantly being updated. We're growing uh, our content there on soulwords.org all the time. Uh, that's, that's one thing. Another thing, oh, thank you very much, Ellie, for posting that. Another thing is uh, if you want little short, bite-sized nuggets of inspiration, there is the WhatsApp. The WhatsApp is, uh, let me just pull this up here. I should have it. Yeah. The WhatsApp started about a year. Oh, Ellie again comes through. There you go. Yeah, that's the link. You can just click on that and it'll uh, send us a text to, subs to subscribe. And we started that um, two years ago, I believe. And uh, you know what I just realized? People are going to click on that and the phone for that's a special phone that's kept in the office, and right now it's near me, and it's going to be beeping and beeping. So uh, can you tell me, Hi, <laughs> can you walk around that way and go grab the phone, the SoulWords phone, and bring it to Tybal? Okay, thank you, because that thing's going to be going off now. Uh, but that's for, like, little SoulWords uh, bite-sized clips, uh, usually two, three times a week we send stuff out. Also, if you want to be uh, in the loop as far as events that we're doing, uh, online events, um, and even now uh, there are the rare uh, in-person events uh, that sometimes happen, but uh, God willing, after the pandemic, we'll have much more regular actual uh, in-person events. Anyways, to stay updated and also to get little uh, short uh, clips, that's uh, through the WhatsApp, okay? Um, and now... Sorry about that. Okay. Um, also, uh, YouTube. 
you can go to youtube.com slash soulwords. And if you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel, generally speaking, any new video content is posted on the uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash soulwords. But again, uh, if you want it all organized, go to soulwords.org. Basically, anything you can find on our YouTube channel, you'll find on the website. And on the website, it's organized and it's searchable and uh, just much more user-friendly. Okay, so that's that. And like I said, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because um, what do I have to offer? I have to offer the teachings. They're not my ideas, but they're the ideas that I'm living with and that I'm inspired by. And um, that's what I have to offer. I have to offer that uh, while I'm studying and constantly revisiting these, these ideas from our, from our faith, uh, I can sort of do it out loud and let you in on it. And uh, that's, that's what I invite you to do. Okay. But tonight, we're going to do something very specific. And um, I'm hoping it'll be sufficient tonight and tomorrow night. And then we're not going to have to do this anymore. Okay. Um, because I do understand people are very into the answering questions. I'm talking about personal questions. I'm not talking about like, uh, you know, questions that you could just uh, look up. I'm talking about people have personal questions, something they're struggling with, a challenge that they're going through, a dilemma, and, and they want guidance, okay? And I want to teach you how to do that um, for yourself and, and for others. Now, how did I get into this business or how did I become known for this? There is a column this column ran for eight years. I'm currently on hiatus, indefinite hiatus. Yes, I get a lot of questions. When am I going to start writing the Ask Rabbi Shay's Tab column in AMI again? I don't know. I, I'm hoping that after this webinar is over, I will have uh, hundreds of replacements that all of you will be able to write the column for me instead of me. Or you'll write it for yourself, and then no one will need to have a column because when you have a question, you'll, you'll ask yourself. But... They, they came to me about eight years ago, and uh, Rabbi Yitzchuk Frankfurter, who's the, the, the editor of AMI, he had interviewed me for a story. I guess what happened is I was highlighted, uh, I think, in the New York Times for something I did with uh, Boys Town Orphanage in Nebraska. And uh, so he picked up on that. Um, and he interviewed me about it. And then about a week after he had spoken to me on the phone the first time, he says, you know, you should write an advice column. I told him, you know, I don't really know what an advice column is. I mean, I've heard of advice columns, you know, Dear Abby, Dear Abby and Landers. But it's not like I really was familiar with that genre. He says, and nevertheless, I think you'd do well with it. So I was thinking, you know, what should I do here? Um, so I came up with the decision. Well, first I asked my rabbis, should I do it? And they said, if, look, if he's offering you a space to write and you'll, you'll get paid a little something, you know, you'll get compensated for your time, go try it out. So I, I agreed to do it. And I was thinking to myself, well, how should I do it? You know, how, how do you do an advice column? Like I said, I, didn't, I wasn't really familiar with the genre. So what I did is I basically decided that an advice column is probably, you know, or at least the way I envisioned it, not knowing too much about what it's supposed to look like, um, it should be, probably be like, like the Igris. Now, what's the Igris? <laughs> uh, the Igris is short for the Igris Kaidish. What's the Igris Kaidish? Igris Kaidish is a set of 
of holy books, which are published correspondences of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Lubavitcher Rebbe answered tens of thousands of pieces of mail in his career. And many of those responses were given for publication. And there, the, the bulk of them are in Hebrew. And then probably the second most common language is Yiddish. And then also there's a lot of English ones, ones that weren't, first of all, a lot of the Hebrew ones were translated into English. But then there are original letters written by the Rebbe in English. And I've always loved reading the Rebbe's letters. Um, you know, the Rebbe has what we call the Sichas and the Maimodim, which those are more like uh, scholarly um, discourses that probe very deeply into a mystical concept. But the letters, I always enjoyed the letters because the letters are talking to real people about real life issues. And they're all kinds of issues, all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. I mean, everyone wrote to the Rebbe, from the religious to the non-religious to the men and women and young and old and people with personal issues, people who had who were you know public figures and were, were dealing with communal affairs. And I just always enjoyed seeing the Rebbe's style of interacting with people. And so I decided, okay, if I'm going to write a column, I'll, uh, I'll just imitate, if it's an advice column, okay, so what do I know in an advice column? I'll just imitate the style of the Igris. And that's what I started doing. And uh, first of all, I, I found it to be a very meaningful opportunity to connect more with my Rebbe. Because, um, you know, what, what is a student? A student is one who... A student isn't just somebody who the teacher has told him what to think. I don't even know if that is a student at all, if that qualifies for a student. The teacher just told you what to think. A student is one who the teacher has taught how to think. And when you think like your teacher, it's, a, it's an unbelievable closeness. There's nothing like it in the world. So in, in that sense, I've been very grateful for the opportunity to exercise trying to think like the way my Rebbe taught me how to think by demonstrating, through example, how to address real life issues. Um, so anyways, like I said, that column came out for about eight years, probably more than eight years. I think I did maybe 400, of, I think like 400 columns. It's a lot. 400 is a lot of columns. People ask me, are the, are the letters real? I think it's interesting why, you know, why do they ask if the letters are real? Generally, because I know if, I, if I ask them, well, why are you asking if they're real? They'll, they'll say, well, you know, because the, the questions are so crazy. Okay, so first of all, I mean, if I can be glib for a second, um, you know, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are normal people, and there are people that you really know. Okay, any person or family that you think is normal, you don't know them, get to know them. If you think that uh, these questions are too wild and crazy to be believable, I don't know how many people you know well. Get to know anyone well, get to know any family well, and you'll realize these questions are very common. That's first of all. Second of all, um, when people ask me, are, are the questions real? 
you should see the questions that we didn't publish. If you're struggling to believe that that many real questions of real problems come in, you should see the ones we didn't publish. Not just because quantitatively you'll see how much more there is, but qualitatively there are issues we can't even touch because of the sensitive nature of it. So if you don't know, I'm jealous. I guess that's what I'll say. But yes, the questions are real. Uh, after we were doing the column for a number of years, we, we put out a book. Okay, so we have the, the AMI letters, volume one, and then we put out a volume two, AMI letters, volume two. So you have these two books, the, the brown one and the blue one. One says volume two on it. Um, and I just want to read to you from the introduction a little bit. And we sent out a bunch of these. We, we sold out. We At the beginning of the webinar, we offered people who registered early um, a special deal just to pay shipping and to get a copy of the books. Those are sold out. If you haven't received yours yet, uh, I know that my daughter just put another shipment in the mail today, so they should get to you uh, soon. Okay, so I just want to read to you from the an excerpt from the introduction. Okay, and, and this is basically what I just told you just now. As for my lack of experience writing in the genre, I decided to emulate as best as I could the style of the thousands of published letters of my Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's Jose Yogan Aleinu, printed in the collection known as Igris Kedish. These letters have been a personal treasure to me in my own life. So I was excited when I realized I might have an opportunity to share with others some of what these letters have taught me. Indeed, all of the elements that have made this column so popular, Baruch Hashem, are borrowed directly from Igris. I tell this to people all the time, very transparent about this. The things that people are so uh, enamored with, I didn't innovate any of it. They're all just imitations and, and, and poor imitations, I might add. Okay. These come to mind as some of the more obvious ones. In other words, some of the things that I ripped off. Here we go. Always validate the person to whom you are speaking, even and especially when you don't agree with what they are saying. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. Be positive. Don't let a person's problem define them. People are good and want to do the right thing. Always encourage. Momentum is powerful. Find what people are doing right, label it, praise it, and ask them to do it more. There are no set rules when it comes to people. Every human being is different. The same question from two people can require two very different answers. Don't answer the question, answer the questioner. And most importantly, look for the answer in the question. People have answers already. Listen, and they will share with you the clarity they seek. Okay. And... Uh, like I said, that's from the introduction, just an excerpt from the introduction. But those are uh, some of the rules that I discovered in the Igris and what I started to apply. And I want to also make sure everyone understands there are people who know the Rebbe's teachings a lot better than I do, a lot better. And sometimes people come up to me and say, what did the Rebbe say about this? What did the Rebbe say about that? 
And I'll tell them, I don't know, but I could look it up. You know, I could look at, I don't know what the Rebbe said about this issue or that issue. I could look it up. They said, but don't you know everything that Rebbe said? No, I, I don't. I really don't. Um, that's not, you know, there's something called bikios. Bikios means breadth of knowledge, encyclopedic knowledge. I, I, don't, I don't claim to have that. But to a certain extent, I don't know if I should make this claim either, but uh, to a certain extent, what I have really worked hard on is developing what we'll call the mahalach hamachshava, the, the style of thinking, at least what I pick up on um, when I read the way that Eben deals with questions in, in his published letters. And so that, that list of, of elements that I use, that's not a list that's written anywhere. That's not like, I, that's just what I've observed, just what I've observed. And, and I'm sure, you know, through through time, over time, I, I could add to that list. Uh, but that's just what I've discovered so far. Um, and I, basically, if you want to know what the webinar is, like if you want a chance to bail out at this point, I'm going to go through those, those things. What I just read to you, um, the important elements of how to answer questions, as I learned from the Igris, that's what I'm going to go through. In fact, I'm not even going to cover all of them. Uh, we don't have enough time to cover all of them, but we're going to go into depth into some of them. Um, yeah, fine. So uh, maybe uh, before I start going through these uh, subjects, just a technical note here. There's two ways of interacting right now, tonight. There's the group chat, um, which I'll try to look at, but um, there's also the Q&A. And I see already in the Q&A there are uh, there are 10 questions. Do, do people see the Q&A or only I see the Q&A? Only I see the questions. Okay, fine. So you can. You can post in the question. You can post a question and uh, I will see it. Okay, I'm just, just, I'm just clearing away a bunch of the, the questions that came in. Okay, fine. So if you, if you have specific questions, please uh, send them in the question. And I guess something that's relevant for, uh, for everyone, you can put in the, in the chat, but I'm not gonna really be monitoring, monitoring the chat so closely. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, one of the things I mentioned there is people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Let me just explain that a little bit. Um, that's, I don't mean that as a tactic. <laughs> that would be really super manipulative 
if somebody were to take it that way, like, oh, I want people to care what I know, so I have to get them to know that I care. <laughs> now, the problem is, I think people are so desperate for validation that they will even, you know, a person who is, who is uh, thirsty in the desert, if you give him a glass of salt water, he'll, he'll, he'll drink it even though it'll dehydrate him even more. And I think people are so desperate for validation that they will even accept um, manufactured caring, inauthentic caring, uh, at least to a certain extent, to a certain extent. Um, it doesn't work in the long term because then person actually ends up feeling burned. Uh, they got vulnerable, they opened themselves up to someone they thought cared, and then they find out it wasn't true. And then, uh, so, you know, if you're a con man and you just want to, you know, close the sale, you know, you know set up the, the fortune teller Swami uh, booth. So I guess you could, you know, do that if you had no scruples. But in the long term, uh, you have to really care. Now, what does it mean to care? there are levels of caring. Um, I find, I find that caring has to be, and this is just my personal experience, that caring has to be to the extent of empathy. Um, if, you, if you're not ready to open yourself up enough to a person to feel what they're feeling, don't open them up. Don't start the surgery. It, it's, it's not nice to let somebody open up like that and then you're not prepared to totally go to all the places they need to take you. So, and when I say to go there, I don't mean to observe from a distance. That you can do with your mind. But to go there means to feel what they're feeling. So, and, and, and that's why, by the way, you know, if, um, I, I, I change my number from time to time just to minimize this. But, you know, I, I get a lot of calls. I get a lot of calls. And I know a lot of people have complaints. So I called him 100 times. I didn't get through to him. Here's the thing. For me to answer the phone from a number that I don't know, means that there's a, a very high likelihood it's going to be a person who wants to tell me some personal fact of their life. And if I'm ready to let them say the next sentence, you know, after they say, could I ask you a question? And when they say, can I ask you a question? It's never like, <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't ask, do you know directions to the Statue of Liberty? No, it's not a technical question. It's a, you know, a personal serious issue. If I let them go on to the next sentence, that means I'm, at least with myself, I'm preparing to go emotionally wherever they're going to take me and to feel whatever they're feeling. And, um, you know, sometimes I find even that when I'm listening, listening to somebody's story, that I feel it more poignantly than they do. Like, I, I will cry. <laughs> it's interesting. People go to therapy, and they cry, and the therapist doesn't. <laughs> People talk to me, and I cry, 
and they don't. And, and I think the reason why, I, I, I mean, I don't cry every time, but it, it happens. And why, why am I crying? Because they've had a lifetime to get used to whatever the, this pain is. They've had a lifetime to compensate and to build defense mechanisms. And I'm opening myself up to get it all in one download. So I'm not prepared for it. So I don't yet have the, the, the coping mechanisms that they have. Now, that's also the asset that I have. See, the one thing I have that you don't have, the one thing I have that you don't have is that I'm not you, which means I have a certain amount of objectivity about you that you don't have. So <laughs> what's the biggest coping mechanism that all of us have is rationalization, right? We rationalize. And you know, you know what it means to rationalize. Rationalize? Rational lies. <laughs> they are the very rational lies that we tell ourselves to convince ourselves that, um, you know, things are the way they are because of a reason that we made up that, you know, makes us feel better. Um, so I don't have those rationalizations. So I'm listening to your story and I'm experiencing it, at least vicariously, um, but I don't have your rationalizations. So to that degree that I'm not yet, uh, I don't have the calluses, the same spiritual and emotional calluses that you have. For, I have my own, trust me, I have my own spiritual and emotional calluses for my issues, for my pain. But, but not for yours, so I'm just a little bit more objective than you. But that's what I mean by, you know, being em empathetic. It means you have to really be prepared to feel what the person is feeling. And even, like I'm saying, more so. To feel what they're feeling and even more so. And that's why I find that when we do get to the part of the conversation where I'm doing most of the talking, um... I will often find myself speaking about the person's issue in the first person. You, you, hear, you hear what I'm saying? You follow me? Like the person told me their story and then they asked the question and then I'll start like talking out loud as if I'm them. I'll speak about them in the first person. You know, this is what I do. This is what I do. This is my, this is my thing. You know, this is how I always react. This is how people always expect me to react. I'll, I'll speak like that. And th th there's a couple of reasons for it. One is, first of all, because, like I said, I'm, I'm opening myself up. I'm, I'm empathizing. I'm allowing myself to feel whatever you're feeling, at least to the best of my ability. Um, another reason I do it is I'm, I'm testing the waters. <sighs> I'm, I'm trying to see what resonates. I make statements, and, and I tell people all the time, I'm making this up. In fact, that's a, that's a, a, a term that I learned from somebody who once helped me. Uh, he used that term. He said, I, 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 here's what I'm making up. And I like that expression because it's very disarming. First of all, you're admitting, I'm just making this up. It's not like I know this about you. I'm making it up. When you have a theory about somebody, when you have an intuition or a hunch, so that's called making it up. And just call it that. Don't, don't say it definitively. Well, you know why you do such and such? Who are you? How, how do you know? But you're making it up. So in that spirit of making it up, sometimes we make it up and it's right. It's on, it's on the money. So when I'm speaking about the other person, the, when I'm speaking 
about the other person that I'm speaking to in the first person, I'm testing the waters. I'm seeing if, if, if they hear me saying it and if it sounds true. It's a good way because if, if I just say it to them as a suggestion, well, maybe the reason you do such and such is because of such and such, they tend to just take it. They tend to be like, yeah, okay, why not? That's what you're telling me. But if I say it as a first-person statement and they hear it come out of my mouth, they can much more quickly, I find, they can much more quickly give me pushback where necessary and say, no, that's, 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 that, that's not resonating. But if it is resonating, oh boy, then I know I'm, I'm going in the right direction and I just, I lean into that. I lean into that where I feel like I've, I don't want to sound like spooky or like spiritual. I, I'm not a spiritual person. I, I really am not, by the way. I'm not saying it to be funny. I'm, uh, you know, um, when I start speaking your story and you're agreeing with me that I'm saying your story and I'm articulating it for you well, then I, it's like I'm channeling you. Yeah, so someone's saying it's hard to know what I'm saying without an example. Yeah, that's, that is true. And maybe what we may do, not tonight, but what we may do tomorrow, if people are ready, is I might actually workshop some real-life questions that people actually have, and, um, and you'll see what it looks like, which I think will be very uh, helpful. And um, if there are people who are willing to be vulnerable um, and, uh, you know, have a dialogue with me, I think tomorrow night we may, we may, try, do, we, we may try doing that so you'll see what it looks like in action. Um, yeah. So are you asking me or telling me I'm called an empath or a highly sensitive person? I don't know. Yeah. I've heard of those terms before. I may or may not be, I don't know, but going back to what I was saying before, Oh, you're telling me, okay, <laughs> you're probably right. Anyways, um, at the point where I'm channeling you, I don't mean like a seance, like, Ooh, like channeling a dead person, like, <laughs> but I'm saying the person I'm talking to and I'm channeling you, I'm speaking to you as you, you get what I'm saying? I'm speaking to you as you, and you're agreeing, you're shaking your head. You're like, yeah, yeah. Then I know I'm on the right track, right? Then I know I'm on, on the right track and that's where I lean into it. Now, if I see, you're like, mm, that's it. And by the way, the truth is I don't even necessarily need, um, facial expressions. In fact, I could do it over the phone as well. Um, you can feel it. You can feel if, it, if, it's, if it's resonating or if it's not. And you're going to say, well, uh, you, <laughs> you're going to say at the very beginning of this webinar, you, Taub, you said that this talent is transferable. But now you're talking about feeling energies and that kind of stuff. And not only do you sound kooky, but <laughs> this does not sound transferable. I'm telling you it is transferable because I believe everybody can do this. Everybody can do it. We, we, we do it all the time, okay? Um, when, there, when, when we feel the need to do it, when you're in a situation where it is very important uh, to empathize with somebody, um, when, 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 you need, when you need to have that connection, um, you're able to do it. And it's just a 
question of being willing to do it. I think we, we're, we're usually not willing to do it because um, it's hard work. I mean, it's, it's exhausting, but look, if somebody's asking you, we're, I'm beginning this whole webinar with the premise that somebody has come to you with a serious issue and they're, and they're asking for help. And it's not just the type of question where you can say, go Google it. They're asking you to walk them through something where they need clarity. So if you're going to do that for them, you have to ask yourself, am I ready to put myself out there to emotionally go on the trip with them? And as draining as it may be, am I ready to, you know, have this experience? Because going back to the, you know, people don't care what you know until they know that you care. People aren't looking for smart people to answer their questions. Nobody cares if you're smart. They want compassionate people to answer their questions. I don't, when I, when I come to you and I, and I bear my soul, it's not because I think you're intelligent. It's because I think I can trust you and that having been vulnerable with you, I will come away, come away with more than just venting. I mean, that, there's some value to that as well, venting. But it's more than just venting. I'm going to gain some insight, some clarity. And that's not because you're smart. It's because you're compassionate, because you care. So I'm starting from the premise that anyone who's on this webinar is willing to do that, is willing to connect on that level. And, and I believe that everyone here, first of all, I believe everyone can do it, but certainly if you, if you joined this webinar, I, be, I believe it is self-selective to a certain extent, meaning that you took time to come on this webinar. You're, you're already the kind of person that people come to and ask questions. You're already the kind of person who, I don't know if the, the right word to use is likes, maybe you know, we don't like it, but who finds yourself often serving this function, okay? So you definitely have this ability. And um, it's not just about knowing the answers. It's about being ready to put yourself out there and have the, the emotional experience. Like I said, you go to the therapist and you cry and the therapist doesn't. <laughs> but to really, really be a, a guide, I'm not even sure what the right word for it is. You know, you may cry <laughs> listening to the person and the person who has the problem may not even be crying. Um, is a question about are there limits to empathy? Like, can a woman be to a, a man or a Jew to a non-Jew? Um, I don't think so. I think you can have empathy for a rock. I think everything in God's creation has a story. And if that thing chooses to tell you its story and you listen, you will have some degree of empathy. Um, in fact... I might even say that to a certain extent, 
a more acute empathy comes about when you're talking to someone who's different than you. The more different than you they are, the more empathy you can have. Which I guess is the difference between tribalism and real empathy. Tribalism isn't empathy, it's I, I defend the people who are like me because it's safer for me. Empathy is, um, is, has nothing to do with, with survival, uh, has nothing to do with uh, strength in numbers. Empathy is opening yourself up. To the contrary, it, it weakens you. It's vulnerability. And, and, and why do I say you can have even more empathy when somebody's more different from you? Because like I was talking about before, if I don't have your defense mechanisms, so whenever I feel what you're feeling, it's going to hit me much more acutely. So, you know, somebody who has my same shtick as I do, I'm almost as blind to it as they are. <laughs> you know, that, but if you're very different from me, then you tell me your story and it's like, wow, that's fresh. That's new. You know, it's new, but it's not new because nothing's new. And so on one hand, you're connecting to the humanness of it. And the other hand, you know, something strikes you that's, that's novel about it. Um, so, um, yeah, but that, that, that's more on the emotional level. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit more on the, I, I guess, let's call it the, the technical level now about compassionate listening or, 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 or empathetic listening. Um, just as a, as, a, as, a, as a technical skill. Now, this is apart from the you know, emotional energy of it. There's a, there's a story that the Briskerov, he was a rabbi in, uh, back in Europe, a very well-known uh, poisik, a halachic uh, decider. He decided many uh, questions about Jewish law. And uh, so once somebody came to him, on the eve of Passover, and he asked, is it all right if at the Seder, you know, on the, on the Passover, by the way, I just want people to understand that all types of people are on this webinar. Uh, I'm sure there are many observant Jews, but also there are people who are not so observant, and uh, as well as people who are not Jewish. So if I say anything Jewish, I'm going to translate it in English, and you're going to wonder, why don't I just say it at, at the Pesach Seder? Because not everyone knows what is Pesach Seder. So, um, anyways, and on the eve of Passover, he came to the, the this, this, this rabbi, and he asked, can he use milk instead of wine <clears throat> for the four cups? There's ritually, you, you drink four cups at the Seder. And uh, four cups of wine. So he says, could he, uh, could he use milk instead of wine? And uh, the, the, the rabbi asked, are you asking for medical reasons? He said, uh, no, I'm asking because practically, you know, it's just cheaper than wine. This is seltzer, by the way, true Jewish drink. And uh, the, the, the rabbi told him, you know what, let me give you a loan, an interest-free loan, and uh, you know, then you can buy wine. And he gave him, I think the number it was 25 rubles, and the guy left the house. So uh, after he left, the rabbi's wife asked him, you know, he could buy 
enough wine for a whole family for the whole Passover for five rubles. Why did you give him 25? So the rabbi said, if he's asking whether or not he can use milk at his Passover meal, then clearly he doesn't have meat to eat either, right? Because in Jewish law, you don't combine milk and meat. So if he's asking if he can use milk for the four cups of wine instead of wine to use milk, then he, not only he doesn't have wine, he also doesn't have meat. So that's why I gave him 25 rubles, enough to buy the wine and to, to buy meat. So you see, when we're talking about empathy, I'm, I'm not just talking about on the emotional level, although that too, definitely that too. But what, what I'm also talking about is trying to connect to the whole person. You know, it's, it's, it's when somebody comes to you and they ask you a question, they're not going to spell out everything. And a lot of times it's because of, you know, pride. I don't mean like false pride. I mean, just the defense mechanism that keeps us safe, you know, like the sense of uh, shame and in in the, in the, even in the healthy sense of shame that you don't go around telling everybody your deepest, darkest problems. Even somebody who you want to help you, you don't necessarily go there. You don't go all the way and tell them, you know, the deepest, darkest stuff. So if you're a compassionate listener, you have to be on the lookout for the fact that whatever they're asking you about isn't the full extent of the problem, okay? Whatever they're calling you about, you, you have to at least probe and, and play it out in your mind to see whether or not, and, and test the waters too, if, 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 you're, if you're not sure, that whatever it is that they started asking, asking you about, in fact, whatever they're prepared, however far they're prepared to go, they already know when they pick up the phone how far they're going to reveal, okay? But there may be a lot more than what they're ready to reveal. And if you're sensitive and you're smart, I mean, people smart, um, and, and, and you're connecting to them, you're going to be able to pick that up. So we always have to look for those clues. You know, it's a little bit of forensic work. It's detective work. But you have to look for those clues. I see um, a, uh, it's a lot of questions in the Q&A. And in the chat, <laughs> I'm like looking back and forth. Do I look in the Q&A or do I look in the chat? Uh, maybe let me just go through some of these. Um, first, I'll go through the chat because everybody sees the chat. Um, I'm, I'm just going to pick some of these. Thank you, Rabbi, for your transparency. I feel like you're right here talking with me. Good. Oh, an honest mensch. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. So that's just a compliment. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Tzniyas restraints. That's a technical question. Um, I won't shy away from it. But, you know, we have halacha and uh, Jewish law, and that governs uh, things like yichud, like being alone 
with a member of the opposite gender and obviously everything should be done in a modest fashion. But uh, look, there's no part of life that Torah doesn't touch. So you have to be ready. Um, if you're gonna hear somebody's story, and like I was saying before, what somebody's ready to say, how far they're ready to go, may not be uh, where they, may not be as far as they end up going. They may end up, if you're compassionate, they may end up telling you more than they planned on telling you. And everyone has, since Adam and Eve, gained self-awareness self and therefore gained awareness of their, um, you know, their, uh, I'll use the word once. I don't like to use it. It's like a trigger word. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but it's, it's, it's a sensationalistic word. So I'm going to use it once. But Adam and Eve gained, gained awareness upon eating from the tree of knowledge. You gained awareness of their sexuality, right? So if you explore almost any issue deeply enough, it will come down to that. I don't want to sound Freudian, <laughs> like it's all about that thing, um, but it certainly comes up and you have to be prepare prepared for that. And I guess, you know, if you ask about Sneas, you know, about modesty, look, um, it also has to do with integrity. It has to do with your degree of, if you're just stealing a vicarious thrill by, you know, getting to find out all, all of a person's, uh, you know, gossip, personal gossip, I, don't, I guess it's like the opposite of gossip, you know, their secrets, their sordid secrets, then you should probably shouldn't be listening to even the beginning of their story. You know what, I, I'll go out and I'll say that. If you can't handle being respectful of someone's dignity when they're telling you their deepest, most painful, most shameful, intimate secret, then I don't think you should be listening to their most trivial pedestrian detail of their life either. Yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that statement. Yeah, I'll say it again. Uh, if you're not prepared to respect someone's dignity when they reveal to you their deepest, darkest secret, then you probably shouldn't even be listening when they share with you what they had for breakfast. I mean, unless it's just for chat or small talk, which I don't do anyway, but I'm saying, <laughs> yeah, you gotta be ready. You gotta be ready for it. You gotta be ready for it. Um, I'm just continuing with some of the chats. Uh, it actually humbles us to empathize with those who are different because we ultimately recognize that we are more similar than different. That's true also. Excellent. You mentioned to find someone that cares and is empathic or empathetic. How do you find someone like that? Uh, how do you find someone like that? Called trial and error. Called trial and error, my friend. You know, you just, I can't tell you how, how to find somebody to trust, but I can tell you how to find someone not to trust. And I'm sure you know how to do that too. And we learn through trial and error. And the, the main thing, the main skill is that maturity allows us to move on more quickly. Um, when you think there's someone who is trustworthy and they're not, when you're younger, you keep knocking at the same door and hoping that their compassion has increased since the last time they burned you, right? But I think as we get older, we get more uh, practical and we realize if someone's not really trustworthy, if they're not, um, if they're not safe to share our whole story with, 
then that's okay. No judgment. Not everybody's safe to share my whole story with. But if they're not, then okay, then I'll move on and I'll, you know, try the next prospect. Um, someone here says, to me, empathy is to feel as if it is my own. It is an exchange and a sharing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what speaks to me most when you answer a question are your Torah Hashkaf examples that you supply that make your answer so wholesome and easy to absorb and real. There is no way I can supply those for others or for myself. I still need you and you're not as dispensable as you hope you will be after this seminar. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So let me, let me tell you. Uh, you know the, the Dubna Magid. The famous Dubna Magid, he was, the, the, he was a Magid, what's a Magid? A preacher, a traveling preacher, he used to go around and say sermons. And he was famous for his parables. What's, you know, what's the most uh, entertaining part of a sermon is the parable. So he used to have a parable for everything. And um, so somebody once asked him, how do you have a parable for everything? So he says, well, uh, I have a parable for that. <laughs> Right, you know this one, and uh, what's the parable? He says there was once a uh, a rich man sent his son to military school, and he went there for two years and he learned archery, bow and arrow, and then on the way back from military school, he was passing by a farm and he saw a little farmer, like a, a farm boy, shooting bow and arrow into the side of a barn, and every single arrow was dead center in the bullseye. So this, the, the rich man's son spent two years military school. He's not that good of a shot. So he goes over to the farm boy and he says, how did you learn to be such a good shot? I mean, I went to military school. I can't shoot that well. Not such a marksman. He says, what do you mean a good shot? I'm not a good shot. He says, I, you are. I see you. There's 20 arrows in the side of this barn. And every single one of them is smack dead center in the middle of the bullseye. So... Uh, the farmer's uh, son says to the rich man's son, he says, no, no, you don't get it. I don't paint the bullseye and then shoot the arrow into it. I shoot the arrow and wherever it lands, I go with the paint and I make the bullseye, right? So uh, what did he mean? What did he mean by that? He meant that we know parables but we don't know what they're a parable for until we encounter that thing in real life. And then we're like, ah, now I know what thing I already know, which is a parable for that thing. The parable is already there. The parable is like the, uh, the arrow. And then the life experience is like the paint around the arrow. So we already have stories or, um, you know, Torah passages or uh, ideas, Torah ideas. And then we encounter something in real life and we're like, ah, that's what that thing is. That's what that thing is talking about. So what I would say is that skill, um, yeah, I guess that does have to do with having studied, but I think much more important than that is the ability to understand what the life experience is that somebody is sharing with you. So what I'm trying to say is, yeah, I know in my column, I always am careful to have a lot of sources, what we call marimekaimais, right? Citations and quoting from, from Talmud and from, from, from Medrash and the, from, the verses from, from uh, scripture. 
and maybe you won't have as many citations as I do. And by the way, you think those citations are so easy? I don't rattle those off. You know, I, I, I do a lot of uh, study and research to go find the citations that I need to fill in after I've already written my answer. What I'm saying is it's the circling, you know, the, the arrow after it's been shot. So it, the main thing isn't having the citations. The main thing is knowing how to compassionately and honestly hear somebody's story and relate it back to that. Okay. Um, I want to jump over to the Q&A. I mean, so, the chats are continuing to come in, um, but I'm going to jump over to the Q&A because I have 28 questions. Um, wow. Yeah, someone's asking if, it will, if it's gonna, the recording will be posted. Yeah, of course, yes, for those who registered for the... Um, wow. Okay, I see there's just a lot, a lot of different questions. And um, you know what I'm going to do? Here's a judgment call I'm going to make right now. I think it'll be most productive... Um, if I don't try to answer the questions right now, I just feel like um, there's something that I want to accomplish tonight, and we only have a half an hour more. We're two-thirds of the way through our 90 minutes. And so, at least for now, I'm not going to look at the questions or at the chat um, because I want to I be able to finish a complete thought tonight. So if that's all right with everybody, um, that's, that's what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. So Q&A at the end. Yeah, maybe we should do Q&A at the end. I just said I'm not going to look at the chat, and I just saw the chat that says do Q&A at the end. Maybe we'll do Q&A &A, Q at the end, or maybe we'll do Q&A at the end of uh, tomorrow night. I'm not sure. Um, this is an experiment for me. It's the first time that, that I'm doing this. I want to talk a little bit more about this, um, what I was talking about before, about listening well to the person, not just on the emotional level, feeling the energy and allowing yourself to emotionally go on the journey with them, but like that story about the biskarov and the four cups of milk, like even on a cognitive level, just um, being on the lookout for the clues. So I I'll tell you, Going back to the book again, there's a there's a quote that I included here. Um, if you can see it here, a wise question is half an answer. The Migdal Ois Alaramba. So I included this quote: "A wise question is half an answer," um, because that really is the foundation of my whole approach. There's, there was a, a physician, a Canadian uh, physician who was uh, very well known for his, uh, I guess, the philosophy of medicine um, named uh, Osler, William Osler. And he used to say, when he was teaching doctors, he used to say to them, listen very carefully to your patient. He is telling you the diagnosis. 
It's very true. It's very true. People tell you their answers. And not only do they tell you their answers, they usually tell it to you right up front. And they don't even know they're saying it. Now, you have to let people talk because they, they can't hear you while they're still full. So you have to let them empty themselves out. And sometimes someone's going to talk, I don't know, half an hour, 45 minutes, and they're just going and going and going and going. And, and you got to let them talk because until they're empty, they can't receive anything. And then when they're all done, um, now, by the way, let me just interject and interrupt myself. There are people who are not going to finish in a half an hour. They're not going to finish in 45 minutes. There are people who will talk literally for hours. Um, they, they will not stop. Um, and I have compassion for those people. Those are people who need to be told uh, gently but firmly that you don't have anything to offer them. When I realize that a person is not going to finish un unless I literally cut them off, that they will never finish, I realize they're, they're not ready yet. And I stress the word yet. They're not ready yet for an answer. Um, a person who comes to you and they need to let, you know, to, to vent for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, even 45 minutes, even an hour. Okay. And then finally they're, they're done and then they're empty and then they can hear. Um, and if you don't respect that process, you know, you can't, you can't accelerate the process. You can't say, well, you know what, after five minutes, you know, just, I, I figured it out already. The truth is you can figure it out after five minutes, because like I told you, they tell you the answer and they tell it, usually they tell it to you up front. Whatever the solution is to their problem, they tell you and they usually tell it to you within the first 90 seconds of talking, sometimes within the first 30 seconds. And yet, nevertheless, you can't tell it to them right away. Think about it. If they were ready to hear it right away, then they wouldn't have to call you. So they have to go through the whole process of telling you the whole story, the whole long story of their life, usually, uh, how they got to this day. The hardest part for us is memory. <laughs> That's the, the hardest part is memory because you have to remember what they told you in the first 90 seconds of the conversation because that's the thing that you're going to tell them back in an hour from now that they're going to be like, wow, that's so true. And you know what? I tell people, I'm very transparent about it. I'll say, yeah, you know how I know that? You told me. <laughs> or sometimes, you know who told me that? Who? Who told you? You. You told me that. You told me the beginning of the conversation, right? Um, so the hardest part is just remembering what they told you. So listen to the patient. They're telling you the diagnosis. It's very true. People know what they need to do. People have good intuition. They, 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 they have confusion. They have self-doubt. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I put out on the, on the WhatsApp, the Soul Words WhatsApp, I put out a, actually, I'll share it with you. It was a little, like, a meme that we put out. Uh, yeah. Here. Okay. So um, we put out this little meme the other night on the WhatsApp. There is no learning, only unlearning and relearning. Lies have to be unlearned. The truth can only be relearned. So, and that was like a memeified version of something that I had said um, on, a, on a voice note on the WhatsApp, which basically um, I was saying that, look, lies are always new. 
people make up new lies all the time, right? But the truth can't be made up. The truth isn't new. The truth, the truth isn't old either. The truth is timeless. Truth is eternal. So lies are, are new, but the truth is, has been around forever. And that's why you never learn the truth. You relearn it. You, you, you discover it like in an act of uncovering it because it's always been there. And, you know, in our tradition, we even say that before you came to this world, you learned the entire truth, right? The, the fetus in utero has an angel that comes to it and it teaches it the entire Torah. So if the entire Torah means all the truth. Before you even entered this world, you already knew all the truth, which ostensibly means <laughs> including and especially what other, whatever truths you need in order to navigate your, your life experience, you know, the, your journey, your life. So you already know every, every truth is an act of, of uncovering something that really you always knew. And that's why people will, um, they'll say to you, when you say to them something that's true, they'll usually say, you know, I always kind of knew that. I like how you said it, but I, I knew that. And that's how you know you're saying the truth. If they say, oh, I never heard that. That's so new, right? <laughs> the Raghachavar used to say that uh, when, when he didn't uh, like, when people were trying to uh, show off uh, scholarly gymnastics, he, one time he told somebody that that is such a chiddush that even Meish Rabbeinu didn't hear of it. Okay, I don't know how to translate that for those who don't have a background in uh, yeshiva studies, but uh, it's a good zinger. It's a Talmudic zinger. Such a chiddish, even may should have been, I never heard of it. Okay, anyways, the point is truth is always, you know, eternal and you're just uncovering it or, or relearning it. Um, the lies, on the other hand, have to be uh, unlearned because <laughs> we picked those up along the way. You got to get rid of those. But when you get rid of those and you get back down to your, your core intuition, so you're pretty good. You're pretty wise. You know, we're innately wise. That's another, you know, core idea that we're, we're innately wise. And you got to let people get back in touch with their wisdom. So anyways, I was, I was telling a story on our WhatsApp. We put out that meme about, you know, the lies have to be unlearned, but truth can only really be relearned because you always knew it. You always kind of knew it deep down. So somebody sent me a text on the WhatsApp and said, uh, and, I, and I really liked, really liked it. In fact, I, I wrote it down somewhere. I'm looking for it right now. Ugh, and I can't find it, but it, it was it was a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I think it was something like, um, "When we recognize genius, it's our own rejected ideas coming back to us because we're hearing them from somebody else." I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but it's something like that. You know, recognizing genius in others is really um, hearing our own words that we our own ideas that we've already rejected. Um, we rejected them because they were our own, and now you hear them from somebody else, and they come back to you um, with a certain nobility, I guess. I forget the quote. Um, so the, the point is that people will know their answer. Sh they'll share with you the answer. And um, I will add to that that at the end of the day, not only can you tell somebody back their own truth and they'll thank you for it, 
But even more than that, you can only tell them their own truth. You can't tell somebody anything that they don't know already. That might sound a little bit uh, ironic, but, oh, thank you for posting that. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. <laughs> what poetry, alienated majesty. Thank you for posting that. Um, yeah. Not only can you get away with telling people back what they already told you and they'll thank you for it, but I'm adding to that and saying, you can only tell them back what they told you. You can't tell somebody something that they don't know. And, and I know it sounds ironic. Well, well, then why do you have to tell anybody anything? <laughs> if they already know it, why are you telling it to them? And if you're, and if, and, and, and if you're telling it to them, then, then ostensibly they don't know it yet. And, and yet it's not true because they know it, but they don't believe it. If they believed that this were the solution, they wouldn't have to call you. They don't believe it's the solution. They know it. People know. And by the way, my best proof of this, that you, uh, uh, that, that you can only tell them back their own truth and that they already know it, they just don't believe it, is that if you try to do it too early in the conversation, they'll reject you too. Yeah, they'll reject you too, just like they reject themselves. So how do you tell them back their own truth and they don't reject it? Two things. A, what we've been talking about, the empathy. When they feel the empathy, the trust factor that that earns you allows them to hear a truth that they've known all along but they couldn't accept it from themselves. And when you've earned that trust through the empathy, now they're able to hear it. Okay, that's A. B, remember I was talking about you got to let them let it out. You got to let them just talk until they don't have what to say anymore. Um, that's another reason why they're going to be able to hear it from you and they couldn't hear it from themselves. Because we don't let ourselves talk long enough. You know that? We don't. We could technically do a lot of this work for ourselves, even, even lacking the objectivity. I saw somebody mention in the chat, well, if we lack our own objectivity, then how do we, how do we even do this? The truth is, okay, to a certain extent, that is always going to be a fatal flaw. And that's why that you have to get a, a, uh, a mentor, you have to get somebody who isn't you, and that's very important. You do have to have a rabbi. And like I told you, when, when they asked me to write the Ami column, I asked my rabbis, you know, you have to have mentors, you have to have people. But I'm saying to a large extent, we can do this for ourselves. The reason, though, that a compassionate person is better at doing it for us than, than for ourselves is because of that 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes of just talking until you have nothing more to say. Okay, so if somebody calls me and I let them talk, even though I don't need them to talk anymore. They told me the answer in the first 90 seconds. And now I'm just waiting for them to be, well, there's two things that are happening. Um, I'm waiting for them to be done so that they're in a receiving mode. I'm also listening for patterns. And I'm going to talk about this, God willing, uh, later. Maybe, maybe it'll have to hold over till tomorrow night. I'm also listening for patterns that reinforce what I made up. Because they'll tell me the truth. And then from that, I'll make up a story. 
And then I'll just listen for however long they want to talk. And I'll really hear them say the same story over and over and over and over again. Okay. So what happens is, I'll, I'll, let me go back to that in a minute. But let me just talk about we, one of the reasons we reject our own truths, even though we know them, is because we don't let ourselves on our own time when we're just talking in our own head, we don't let ourselves get to that point of uh, being done. Because a lot of it has to do with, with this, you know, with the distraction. So we, you know, it's like if I'm talking to you on the phone, I can stay focused. Well, you see, I'm doing it right now, you know, past hour and 45, hour and 15 minutes, right? But on my own, if there's no audience, it's much harder. It's much harder to stay focused on a thought. The person needs those 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes of emptying out before they're ready to receive back the truth that they already knew. So if we would do that, what I'm recommending is if you would meditate, and uh, meditation could be go take a walk. Go take a two-mile walk and stay focused on one thought. And if you get you know, distracted, come back to the thought and leave, your, and leave your phone at home. Leave your phone at home and take a two-mile walk and think about one thing, whether it's something that's going on in your life or it's a Torah thought or a combination of the two, that's, that's the best. And you will find that at the end, of that focused session of, of thinking, ideas that you knew to be true already will click into place and you will be able to believe them and receive them and cherish them. So that, that's, the, that's the second thing. And then C, there's, there's, there's another thing, uh, which is, and I, and I alluded to it uh, a minute ago, and I want to go back to it, is uh, the, the, what am I doing when I'm letting the person talk, even though they gave me the answer at the very beginning? I said that, uh, and I'm going to repeat it and then talk about it a little bit more in depth here. I'm gathering evidence of patterns. I'm gathering evidence of patterns. What they did is they told me the truth. Then they tell me that truth as one story usually told nine or ten times. That's usually what people do. They tell you their truth, and then they tell you the story of that truth nine or ten times. Now, what's remarkable is they think that they told you nine or ten different stories. They did not. They usually told you one story. And the skill, and, 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 and this is not about you know, you know, emotional uh, empathy like I was talking about before. This is, this is a cognitive, cognitive skill. Um, it's just seeking and identifying patterns. So, and you have to be able to think uh, laterally. When I say you have to be able to think laterally, um, you have to realize that sometimes a person will have the same story in vastly different circumstances. Okay, so one story was about a job, and another story was about a marriage, and another story was about a childhood trauma, 
right? But you listen and you realize, well, really all three stories were about the same truth. They're all stories about, you know, um, I end up getting hurt when I'm trying to get something from somebody else that I'm ashamed of receiving. I, I'm just using that as an example because it's something I remember recently talking to somebody about. And, um, you know, and I was able to tell them, well, you know, you told me that you, in fact, I, when I was saying it to them, I did it in first person. I, I said to them, yeah, that's what happens to me. You know, I get hurt every time I look to get something from somebody that I'm ashamed of. And I end up getting hurt. And then they're like, yeah, that's what happens. I'm like, yeah. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I'll prove it to them. I'll say, like it happened in this place, in this place, in this place, in this place. And all of a sudden they're like, whoa, hold, hold on. There's like this coherent narrative to my life where this thing is happening over and over and over again. And now all of a sudden it's like everything makes so much sense. And in that moment where everything makes so much sense, then you tell them back the truth that they told you in the first 90 seconds and they receive it. But in order to do that, you have to be a good uh, recognizer of patterns. And like I said, to recognize patterns, you have to think laterally. You know, when you're learning the Talmud, for instance, it'll, be, it'll discuss a legal principle and it'll illustrate how that legal principle applies to commerce and how it applies to ritual law and how it applies to marital law. And if you don't understand what the Talmud is doing, if you don't understand that it's teaching a legal principle and using a, a vast array of, of cases to bring out the same legal principle, it's very confusing. Like, why does it keep changing subjects? Like, first we're talking about a guy selling a ship and now we're talking about uh, a guy uh, picking a radish in, in the sabbatical year. Like, what's going on? And, and, and you have to realize, a story isn't about what happened. It's not what a story is. A story is about a feeling. What happened is just the, 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 the external vessel for the feeling. That's why people listen to stories because of the feeling. Happy story. A sad story. An uplifting story inspirational stories. Stories are characterized by the, by the emotional energy, by the, by, by the feeling. And what you have to do is you have to strip away the, you know, then this happened, then this happened, then this guy did this, and this guy, all that stuff is irrelevant. Because it's usually the same emotional dynamics being repeated in different relationships, different settings. But it's the same emotional dynamics. Um, and when you can identify that pattern for somebody and say to them, wow, it sounds like your life is a series of whatever it is, whatever it is that you're hearing, the, the, what that does is it builds such a, a credibility. The person is so believing now that they will even believe you when you tell them the truth that they already knew. You hear what I'm saying? If you can listen carefully enough, well, let me back up. If you can be compassionate and go with them on the emotional journey, 
That's the first thing. And you can be patient and let them get it all out until they're finished. That's the second thing. And you can be discerning and spot the patterns and articulate enough to speak the pattern back to them. If you can do all that, what is that? Four things. Compassionate enough to care. Patient enough to let them get it all out. Discerning enough to pick up the patterns. Articulate enough to express their story back to them as a recurring pattern. If you do all that, the credibility you have now earned is so strong they will even believe you when you tell them back their own truth that they already knew all along. And that's when they call you a genius. <laughs> like, like Emerson said, the genius is our own rejected thoughts coming back to us. Oh, you're a genius. I'm not a genius. I just earned enough of your trust that you would believe me when I would tell back to you that truth that you've been rejecting. Someone says, can you repeat that one more time, please? Did you type that after I repeated it the first time? And you want me to repeat it a second time for a total of three times? I'll do it. Send it. Like as a text, you write it up. In writing, you write it up, and I'll send it out on the WhatsApp tonight. If you're compassionate enough to let the person really feel that you're ready to go with them emotionally, through their whole experience. And you are patient enough to let them talk it all out until they're done. And you are discerning enough to then pick up and identify the patterns of their story, their recurring patterns of their story, and articulate enough then to say it back to them, say their story back to them in a way that they, they can identify their recurring patterns. Then the level of credibility and buy-in they will have at that point is so strong, they will even believe you when you tell them back their own truth that they always knew and that they had been rejecting. And that's when they're cured when they can finally accept the truth that they always knew. And you did nothing but play shadchan between a person and their true self. That's all you did. You were matchmaker to help somebody meet their wiser, <laughs> truer self. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I heard it directly from the person it happened to, um, my colleague and friend, Svi Hirsch Weinreb, told a story that as a young man, he was a rabbi and uh, a therapist, very, very, very respected in his community, and everyone came to him with their problems. And he had, he had one problem is that when everyone comes to you with their questions and their problems, who do you go to when you have problems? You didn't know what to do. And it was really, he, he told me he was depressed. And he, he, I don't think he would use that word, uh, you know, casually, loosely. He had a lot of questions. And he, didn't, he didn't know where to get guidance to the extent that he was feeling depressed about it. So he, it's interesting. He says, I went to the smartest person I knew, Naftali Berg, Allah Shalom as a nuclear physicist, a genius, and I asked him what to do. It's interesting that he didn't ask Naftali to help him with his problems, but he, he, 
he asked him, how should I deal with my problem? So Naftali told him, you have to go to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now, he had never spoken to the Rebbe. He'd never written to the Rebbe. But uh, he, he looked up the number and he called up the Rebbe's office and the Rebbe's chief secretary, Rebbe Hadakov, answered the phone. And um, so Rebbe Hadakov said, Vereto, who's speaking? In Yiddish, he said, who's speaking? So, um, so Rabbi Weinreb didn't want to say his name because that was the whole point. He was like embarrassed about the questions that he had. And he was like, you know, didn't want to say it's me. You know, you didn't want to say his name. So he didn't say, you know, it's Vihersh Weinreb. He just said, a Yid von Maryland, a Jew from Maryland, you know, like very, you know, as general as he could be. And uh, so Rabbi Hadakov, the Rabbi's uh, secretary said, okay, no, you know, tell me what are, you know, you can ask whatever you want. So he's asking his questions, and as he's asking the questions, he hears Rabbi Hadakov is repeating everything he's saying out loud. It's very, you know, strange way to have a conversation with somebody. You're talking, and they're repeating everything you're saying out loud. And at the end of it, he realized that Rabbi Hadakov is acting as a human speakerphone. This is in the 60s. This is before they had speakerphone, I guess. And uh, he was speaking out loud so that the Rebbe could hear him. And in the background, he hears the Rebbe's voice saying to the secretary, Zogim, as, uh, as a roof in Maryland, said in Yiddish, tell him that since he's calling from Maryland, you know, there's somebody in Maryland who's really good to talk to. His name is Weinreb. <laughs> so, uh, Weinreb gets like uh, totally shaken. Like, what's what's going on here? Like, <laughs> he didn't know, even know what to say, so he's silent for a while. And finally he says, Aber, uh, <laughs> Ich bin der Weinreb. I'm that Weinreb. And Rabbi Chadukov says, Ein uh, <laughs> minute, you know, hold on a minute. And he hears Rabbi Chadukov saying to the Rebbe, Herzog is... Ed is there, Weinreb. He says he's Weinreb. You know, the Rebbe just said, if you have a problem, you know, sounds like you should talk to Weinreb. And uh, and now Chadukov is telling the Rebbe, but he says he's he's Weinreb. So he hears the Rebbe say, Ebezei, Zoller wissen sein. As a mole, darf man reden zu sich. If that is the case, it should be made known to him that at times one needs to speak to himself. That's the story. What do I find remarkable about that story? Did the Rebbe know that this is Weinreb or the Rebbe didn't know? I don't know. You know that those, those are things that are beyond my pay grade. And, and if that's what the story is about, it's not even inspiring to me because I can't even relate to it. But what I can relate to is Here's a story about somebody who tells you they have problems, tells you they're confused. And you tell them, well, you know, go speak to the guy who has clarity, who's not confused. And they say, well, no, that's me. The guy you think is so wise is really 
totally in the dark, fumbling around. And you hear them say that, and you don't back down. See, if it were me, it would be very hard for me to not believe the person when they say, I don't know, I'm the confused one. How, 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 how can I have answers? But the Rebbe didn't back down. The Rebbe insisted, no. Even after Weinreb had said, but I'm Weinreb, the Rebbe didn't back down. The Rebbe said, speak to yourself. You think you're confused? Okay, maybe you're also confused. But you're also very wise and have clarity and you have the answers that you seek. And, and, and essentially, that's what we do. We tell the person, okay, I'm not, I'm not denying that you feel a certain amount of confusion. Fine, that's also true. But at the same time, you also have clarity. And the Moldav men read Speak to yourself. And when somebody has that confidence in you, like the Rebbe had in Weinreb, instead of, oh, oh, you're Weinreb. <laughs> okay, so forget everything I just said. <laughs> you're a very confused guy. Such questions you're asking. <laughs> you know what? I thought Weinreb, Weinreb has a reputation. I thought he was a really wise guy, but apparently based on the questions you just told me, Hoo, don't talk to Weinreb. No, the Rebbe didn't do that. The Rebbe stuck to his guns. That same clarity, it's still there. Speak to yourself. It's uh, the 90 minutes are up. And uh, oh, I have a comment here. The person is saying they're not following. Okay. Um, Yeah, well, that's why it's being recorded, so you can try to make sense of it. Um, there's a question here. I'm, I'm going to do a few questions, and we'll, we'll finish because we're, we're over time already. A question about do you go inside, in quotes, or ask divine help before responding to someone? Um, not as a specific action before a conversation but as a general intention throughout the day um as a general and i mean I, I'm, I'm not claiming to be so you know perfect at it but as a general intention throughout the day i'm i'm asking hashem whatever it is that i'm aware of whatever it is that's making it through my filter it should only be of benefit to the world, whatever that means, in whatever way that you know that comes to pass. So it's a, just a, it's a general intention. Um, somebody asks here: Is it a good or bad thing to use a personal ex experience as an example? That's a great question. And like any question, the Jewish answer is: It depends. Right? So depends. Um, it depends how you're doing it. You know, sometimes when people use their own personal experiences to try to answer other people's questions, what they're really doing is they're fumbling, they're grasping, they're trying to find common ground, and they, they haven't found it. 
So I haven't related to your story, but I'm telling you a story that's similar enough to yours that maybe, you know, we can start to, you know, I, I, we can start to relate to each other. Um, I, I try not to do that. And, 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 and the reason is because if, if, if I can't tell you your story, if I need to use my story to tell you your story, then I'm not there yet. I'm not, I'm not yet in your story. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll put it this way. In my own mind, I may start thinking about things in my own life that their story reminds me of. But I, I try not to say that to them because, you know, that's, that's sort of like an in-between process where I haven't yet come to enough empathy where I'm, you know, I don't need my story as a parable for their story. I, I can just use their story, okay? Um, there's a question here. Wow, there's so many questions. I'm sure I'm missing a lot of them. Um, many times people might have the wrong perception. So why would it be a good idea to reinforce the perception by repeating back their own truth? Well, repeating back their own truth, not repeating back their own lie, repeating back their own truth. You're right. People do have warped perceptions all the time. So you don't want to repeat back to them that stuff. You want to repeat back to them the truth. So I guess that's another question, is how do you sift between the warped things that they're telling you and the truths that they're telling you? Um, they feel different. Lies feel different than truths. Um, but generally... The, the lies are, are, like I was talking about before, you know, to rationalize as rational lies. The lies are the things we make up to justify what we're already doing. And, and truths are usually about something that we need to do more of. Either we haven't done it, usually we've done it, but we need to do more of it. Now, you understand, like, a lie is there to preserve the status quo, like, kind of like uh, power structures, like governments. Every government is there, ultimately, to keep itself in control, right? They're not there to serve the people. They're there to keep themselves in office. So, and that's what the, the animal soul is there to do. It's all about self-preservation. So, <laughs> it's there to uh, preserve the status quo. So lies are usually uh, reactionary, uh, you know, as, as opposed to progressive. Truths are usually lofty and idealistic. Um, when, when somebody tells you something, that you, you hear that and you feel that that's something that would be a worthwhile ideal to aspire to. That's a truth. You hear what I'm saying? When somebody tells you a statement about their life and you hear that and it sounds like, 
you know what? That is something that is worth devoting one's life to, to attaining. That's a truth. When they tell you a reason why they're doing what they're doing, it could be a lie. You usually has some aspect of, of lie in it. Um, yeah. It, it's, it's 10 minutes over the time. Okay, so I just wanna review and, and finish and we have part two tomorrow night and uh, we'll see who comes back. <laughs> I'm sure for many of you, this was a, uh, a surprise. This was not what you expected, and that's fine. I said at the very beginning, we're gonna talk about how, we're not gonna talk about what. So I'm sure that some people came here and they wanted to hear more of the what style. You know, like, here are the eight tips, here are the eight points, here are the eight tricks. It's not a what, it's not even a list of what's, it's a how. It's, a, it's, a, it's an approach, it's a way of being. Um, but just to, to recap what we talked about and then we'll, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll finish for tonight. Um, what did we say so far? We said that people don't care what you know until they know what you care. Um, that means being ready to be an open book emotionally let me, by the way, let me just clarify, because I don't think I clarified about that. And it ties into a question that I answered about uh, 10 minutes ago about using personal experiences. Um, there's a definite occupational hazard of being tempted to be exhibitionistic, um, you know, to counter vent. They vent, and then you vent. It's not appropriate. That's not what they're calling you for, okay? So... Um, when I say to go there with them emotionally, the vulnerability, the only vulnerability is allowing yourself to feel what they're feeling. Not that you're going to throw on them, you know, the feelings that you came into the call with. That's, that's not fair and it's not appropriate. Okay. But the first thing we said is, you know, being emotionally ready to go with them, to connect with them, to go to those places, to the, to the point where you can feel it. And like I said, it, it may hit you harder than it hits them because you don't have the, the coping mechanisms built up that they do. Um, I spoke about being discerning, uh, listening for the answer. Um, the patient is telling you the diagnosis. Um, I spoke about then listening for patterns, listening to their story as one story that took place many, many times. Um, and, and somebody asked earlier, like, it's very hard to relate to these things without tangible examples. You're 100% right. You are 100% right. And um, I would like to try to do that. Maybe some of you who are ready to come on the Zoom with me, you don't have to come on video, but uh, on audio, maybe tomorrow night, somebody who's ready to talk through something, uh, maybe we'll try to do that. Um, it's a little bit tough to do because... It's not something I can do in five minutes. Um, it could take uh, a much longer time to go through the process and it may be boring for people, but I, I do wanna try that. So if you're interested in doing that, um, please uh, contact us and let us know. Um, yeah, okay. And then um, we spoke about 
um, letting people tell their story. We talked about being patient. We talked about listening for the patterns. We talked about saying it back to them. Um, repetition is very important, by the way. Repetition, um, even, even, I mean, this is a little bit more of a public speaking tip, but even in vocal intonation, like even to repeat with the same intonation. So then you did this, and 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 then you, did this, and then you, you hear like with the same rhythm, the same cadence. And like when a person hears it like that, like this litany, like, like wow, really? Yeah, I just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then, um, like I said, by, by, by the time you're done doing that, I just want to say, because again, it's very hard without examples, but in my column, for instance, on the occasions where I would meet somebody who I had answered in the column, they will come to me and they'll say, it is spooky how you knew what you knew. Okay, so let me tell you something. I do not have Ruach HaKadosh. Um, it's not like I you know, have dreams where things are revealed to me. It's... If I want to be cynical about it, I can call this a carnival trick, okay? But all it is is just listening and saying back to somebody with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of uh, taking a little bit of poetic license, and usually you're right, and saying back to them what they already revealed to you, okay? So you just, you have to, and again, uh, the best the best way I have of describing it is like when you're learning a piece of Talmud, don't get hung up on specific uh, cases, like the guy's buying an ox. Oh, this is a story about a guy buying an ox. No, it's not a story about a guy buying an ox. It's a story about a legal principle, like, um, you know, are you allowed to, uh, you have to keep your word, right? And then it might have five different examples of a person keeping their word that have nothing to do with buying an ox or even with buying anything, right? Um, so you have to relate to the uh, emotional energy behind their stories. And, I, you know, I, I'll mention another thing. I'm trying to summarize and wrap up, but there's that old saying. I think it's falsely attributed to Eleanor uh, Roosevelt. Um, you know, I once saw a meme with a picture of Abraham Lincoln on it and said, don't believe everything you read on the Internet. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> okay. So anyways, but there's that quote. I think it's falsely attributed to uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. And the other half of all falsely attributed quotes are uh, Albert Einstein and uh, Mark Twain. But anyways, I think she said, or they say that she said, that small minds talk about uh, people, big, uh, big minds talk about ideas. I think that's a helpful way of understanding how to hear a story. A story isn't about what happened. He did this and he did that. And then the shopkeeper came in, and then the lady bought a chicken, and then, right, that's a way, of, that's a small-minded way, clean Keppeldick way of following a story. It's not a story about a lady bought a chicken. It's a story about, it's a story about uh, shame. The woman didn't even have enough money. She knew she couldn't afford a chicken, and she came in. And she asked the shopkeeper, what could you sell me for $2? He said, there's, there's nothing. I can't sell you anything. She had to swallow her pride. Can you sell me anything? Right? Whatever. I'm just making it up on the spot. And then the next story 
has nothing to do with a chicken, has nothing to do with a shopkeeper. Next story is, you know, about a fire engine. But don't say, oh, well, chickens and fire engines have nothing to do with each other. That's not what the story was. The story was about the feeling. So, the, 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 in, in, you know, it, this, this is a story. She was ashamed to, 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 to ask the shopkeeper to sell her a chicken when she didn't have enough money. Then so she was ashamed. They asked her, did you pull the fire alarm when the fire engine came by? Right. That's what you have to listen for. And then you say, you find the pattern, and then you say it back to them. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah, way over time. I hope that this is helpful stuff. Um, we have a session two tomorrow night. Um, thank you for all the questions that came in, both on the chat and the Q&A. If this stuff saves, I will take a look at it tonight. And God willing, try to address some of it tomorrow night. And if somebody wants to try to workshop um, a real issue. But by the way, it can't be a fake issue. If you're making one up, it will not work. Tell you one more story. One more story, and then we're going to got to go to bed. Actually, you don't, you don't got to go to bed, but you can do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> one more story. The Nadeb Yehuda, Rabbi Yehezkel So he was the Rav in, in Prague city of Prague. So anyways, uh, he came there, he was, he was installed as the rabbi, and somebody didn't like him. And they came over to him and they asked him a shayla, a rabbinic question. And he answered, and then the guy showed him in the Shulchan Aruch, in the actual written you know, law books, no, you're wrong. He answered wrong. How can you be the rabbi? And you answered wrong. So uh, the Nadi Behuda asks the guy, he says, can I ask you a question? Is this a real situation, or did you make up this question in order to test me? He said, uh, what difference does it make? He says, no, it, it makes a difference. Which one was it? He says, I made it up in order to test you. But th that's, that's irrelevant. The point is, you answered such and such, and I'm showing you in the legal books, that's wrong. The Nadeb Behuda says, then it's no wonder I got it wrong. You see, if it's a real question, Hashem isn't going to punish you because of my ignorance. <laughs> you came to me with a real question. Hashem's going to help me out so that you shouldn't stumble just because I don't know the right answer. But if you made up a question in order to embarrass me, Hashem's not going to help me to spare me embarrassment. That, I'm on my own. Okay. So if you make up a question or a situation, Hashem's not going to help me to, to nail it. You know, because there's the, the only thing that could be gained by me nailing it, quote unquote, is that I would look good. But who cares if Taub looks good? But if it's a real situation that you really are trying to uh, to sort out, then we'll we'll have a little bit of uh, siyata dishmaya over here. So you can let me know if you want to go through that. Okay, thank you, everybody. It's late, and uh, bless you all. Bless you, and Hashem just should continue get to give good people, sensitive people like you. The strength to to continue to help the people that that Hashem puts you in a position to help. Okay. Good night. <laughs>